What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Stalin, authoritarianism, genocide, Nazis, and the dismal science. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. There is indeed more food and more kinds of food in one ordinary supermarket of the present day than in any of the old hungry dreams dreamed in Russia or elsewhere. But Khrushchev believed that the plenty of the stories was coming in Soviet Russia, and coming because of something that the Soviet Union possessed and the hungry lands of capitalism lacked, the planned economy. Because the whole system of production and distribution in the USSR was owned by the state, because all of Russia was, in Lenin's words, one office, one factory, it could be directed as capitalism could not to the fastest, most lavish fulfillment of human needs. Therefore, it would easily outproduce the wasteful chaos of the marketplace. Planning would be the USSR's own self-serving millstone, its own self-victualing tablecloth. This Russian fairy tale began to be told in the decades of famine before the Second World War, and it lasted officially until communism fell. Hardly anyone believed it by the end. In practice, from the late 1960s on, all that the Soviet regime inspired to do was to provide a pacifying minimum of consumer goods to the inhabitants of the vast shoddy apartment buildings ringing every Soviet city. But once upon a time, the story of Red Plenty had been serious, an attempt to beat capitalism on its own terms and to make Soviet citizens the richest people in the world. For a short while, it even looked, and not just to Nikita Khrushchev, as if the story might be coming true. Intelligence was invested in it, as well as foolishness, a generation's hopes and a generation's intellectual gifts, and a tyranny's guilty wish for a happy ending. This book is about that moment. It is about the cleverest version of the idea, the most subtle of the Soviet attempts to pull a working Semobranka out of the dream country. It is about the adventures of the idea of Red Plenty as it came hopefully along the high road. But it is not a history. It is not a novel. It is itself a fairy tale. And, like a fairy tale, it is wishful, irresponsible, not to be relied on. The notes at the back indicate where the story it tells depends on invention, where the explanation it gives depends on lies. Remember as you read that this story does not take place in the literal historical union of Soviet socialist republics, but only in some nearby kingdom, as near to it as wishes are to reality, and also as far away. A specter has been haunting SF for almost two centuries now, the specter of socialism. It has been the gravity well that has deformed the shape of the speculative genre, as a speculative concept itself in the 19th century, and then as a very real, unavoidable political phenomenon in the 20th. The rationalist view, planning for a future utopia with relentless automation and technological advancement, is best encapsulated in the real world in communism, as it was popularly conceived, as are the horrors of authoritarianism and the obliteration of free will. 
Much of SF has been engaging with the ideas that Marx and his followers introduced into the world, whether directly or indirectly, whether treated approvingly or as a boogeyman. But at the end of the day, part of what makes communism so fascinating and horrifying is how it aims to reduce so much of human society and history to figures on paper, and how ill-equipped humans are to handle things from a purely mathematical viewpoint. This is What Mad Universe, and we're looking at Red Plenty by Francis Spufford. We'll be right back after this. Today's show is brought to you by Epos Gaming Audio. With a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIEND15 at checkout to save 15%. In a world of podcasts, only three men are willing... What, well, dude, what are you doing, James? You told me to do the, the promo for the podcast, right? That's what we're yeah, doing. But I mean, you know, we could actually tell people about what we are. I mean, we're the Famicast. We're a bi-weekly show. We talk about Nintendo and games in Japan. Uh, I'm Danny, and uh, that was James. And we got another guy. What, who are you again? I, I'm a, I'm the, I'm the saboteur. I'm the the henchman. I'm the, the interloper. That's uh that's Ty. He is our anime trash expert. <laughs> Digs around in some UFO catchers for check us out. We're in Japan. We like Nintendo most of the time. The Famicast only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Okay, so as I say, we're talking about Red Plenty by Francis Spufford. Uh, I am Adam Prosser, and with me as always is Philip Rice. Hello. And we're joined today by uh, my friend and co-host on my other podcast, uh, the Mirror Universe Star Trek podcast, which is uh, a little more obscure, and also the guy who suggested this book uh, <laughs> to to us, um, so we decided he should join us. This is Douglas McDonald Norman. Hi, Douglas. Good day. <laughs> jo- Douglas is joining us from Australia, so of course we're all at very strange and different time zones right now. Yes, I'm broadcasting from the future. <laughs> As always, Australia is the land of red plenty. That was it is red <laughs> sometimes. Um, so um, yeah, so this is uh, this is a, an interesting book, and it, this is probably just by its nature going to be our most explicitly political episode in the sense of talking about the nuts and bolts of political history. So brace yourself, kids, for a book about Soviet economics. <laughs> um, but I think it's really interesting, um, and um, I'll just ask Douglas, uh, so what was it that really drew you to this book? What, what is it that you like so much about this book? What a question. <laughs> um, I was first introduced to this book 11 years ago after the academic group blog Crooked Timber did a fantastic roundtable seminar posting various takes on it. The first of those was a very, very positive review from SF author Kim Stanley Robinson, and that basically made it inevitable that I would buy this, because Kim Stanley Robinson is possibly the sci-fi author who has had the greatest impact on me. I not only 
read but inhaled the Mars trilogy when I was a teenager and it had an enormous impact on how I understood the world. So Crooked Timber, shout out to them for bringing this to my attention. I read this for the first time about 11 years ago in 2012 and even at that time I was just blown away by it. It's an incredibly hard book to categorise. Not just literally, although it is literally a hard book to categorise, I had difficulty finding a copy of this in my local bookstore because they'd filed it in Russian history. (laughs) Um, But in terms of just grasping, what is it? Is it an alternate history? Is it a series of character studies? Is it a treatise on economics and political theory? Is it a fable? Is it a cautionary tale? Is it a mirror of our universe? It's a mixture of history on a really broad and epic scale, but it's also capable of passages of incredible beauty, like a description of cancer and how cancer works that's like nothing else I've ever read. It's just... It's an incredibly ambitious project, and it just knocked my socks off when I read it. So when Adam emailed me earlier this week to ask if I'd be willing to be on the podcast, I had not read the book in 11 years, and so I needed to buy a new copy and read it as quickly as I could. And reading it again felt like reading it for the first time. It it just does stuff with the medium and does stuff with that complex blend of fiction and nonfiction that just surpasses imagination. I love this book. Yeah, it, it, it is. It really is a, um, uh, a very well-written book. And the fact that it's done as a series of sort of vignettes about characters and people um, really makes it come alive um, in what would other be literally what is known as the dismal science. <laughs> because it's about, well, not just economics, but sort of you know, political planning, West Wing kind of stuff, I guess, except for the Soviet Union. Um, but um, uh, just to so just to jump back a bit uh, before we get into this, it is uh, it is about the Soviet Union and the big dreams it has and how those dreams didn't happen. And it's really interesting because um, as I've something I've realized as we've been doing this podcast is that the Soviet Union and socialism and communism are kind of bound up with how as I said at the beginning, with how um, science fiction kind of took shape over the 20th century. And uh, so Phil did not uh, read this book, uh, unlike the other two, but he's, uh, he's read quite a bit of Soviet science fiction. He's, we, uh, he's talked some stuff. What, what, was, what were some of the things you read there, Phil? Um, Phil? Well, I, I think the biggest one that, uh, from what I can tell of uh, uh, this book, that has the, the closest relation is a... Uh, uh, a Russian book from uh, 1908, so pre-Soviet, but this was the first uh, Russian Revolution, I believe. Uh, is that right. right? Well, there was, yes, there was an attempted, uh, there was a big uprising in 1905, which kind of laid the table for the later actual Bolshevik Revolution. Um, there's, you know, there was an attempted sort of uprising. Uh, people were slaughtered by the Tsar. Uh, it led to a lot of sort of astonishment by people who thought that the Tsar wouldn't do something like that, and he had. Um, and uh, there was enough pushback that the Tsar had to do some reforms. Um, and that actually uh, grew the, swelled the ranks of uh, the, uh, the Bolsheviks and various other communist groups that existed and socialist groups and unions and so on, because they started to realize, hey, our, our, our leader isn't looking out for us. <laughs> um, and then that, uh, you know, then... They, there were some reforms those slowly were walked back and then 
uh, in the um, obviously World War One. Uh, at the tail end of that, they uh, the people rose up and forced the Tsar to step down, and then a few months later, the actual Bolshevik Revolution happened in the during the power vacuum that that uh, happened. Um, but yeah, so so there was there's there were sort of a series of uh, cycles uh, that led to revolution. So there was a lot going in. I, I'd by the way, I'd highly recommend uh, the Revolutions podcast hosted by Mike Duncan, uh, especially the first ten episodes on this on the Russian Revolution, um, which are really good for like laying the groundwork of what was going on in the Soviet Union and how it led to uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, anyway, as you were saying, Phil. Yeah, so this um, was written uh, soon after the uh, uh, 1905 revolution, I suppose, um, um, and it's it's about a, um, uh, a communist thinker who gets um, um, not abducted because it's not against his will, but he, he meets some some Martians uh, from a uh, version of Mars that's a socialist uh, uh, utopia, um, and um, most of the book is just him going you know, being given a, a tourist guide of Mars. Um, and, uh, uh, the, the way you, uh, you were talking about the, the sort of premise of, um, Red Plenty, it, it really reminded me of, a, a section of the, uh, of Red Star. Oh, I, I didn't say the title of it. It's called, uh, Red Star by, uh, Alexander, uh, Bogdanov. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's a section where it talks about how, how, um, labor works um there's uh basically a big signboard in um uh in every uh, um like in local areas that's connected to a centralized uh bureau of um um who calculate what jobs need doing um uh, and which jobs have plenty of people working there and you can um basically take uh um a position that's open. I mean, you can take any position, you can do any job, but uh, uh, that sort of influences what you want to do. So if you have a skill in uh, multiple areas, you can take either, you know, either uh, any of the jobs um, and you can do whatever you want that day for as long as you want to do it. And then um, some people work more, some people work less. Um, and, uh, yeah, so so the the idea of uh, systematizing the um, what jobs need doing sort of reminded me of what you were talking about. Yeah, that well, so this is actually the thing about the Soviet Union. Not to get again, Revolutions podcast is a great introduction. There's a lot of books about uh, books out there that are really good. But um, one of the things to understand about the Soviet Union, uh, very briefly, um, right up until the actual Bolshevik Revolution happened. Um, even Lenin had said, you know, he didn't think Russia was ready for uh, for communism, and that was actually the standard Marxist line. Marx's idea is that a, once capitalism developments, capitalism is a phase of human development, and when you get developed enough, uh, so, you know, you, the workers basically start to take over, and you get socialism in via revolution or via some kind of uprising or 
unions or something like that, um, because you, you've got this society that's being built by the workers entirely. Um, and they, so it's natural they'll step into the leadership role. But it requires capitalism to be fairly advanced and developed, as it was in Germany at the turn of the century, for instance. And even in Marx's day, it was, it was pretty much there. And he's from Germany, of course. Um, Russia was a, a country that was basically feudal. It was almost like it, they'd literally only abolished feudalism in the 1880s, I believe. It was very, very backward uh, from most from a technological and societal standpoint. And um, nobody was looking to it as, you know, the forefront of something like socialism. Um, Lenin basically saw an opening. But the thing is, Russia had historically been involved in crushing a lot of revolutions and uprisings over the over the last century or two. Um, the Russia would always send the, the biggest uh, bout of troops to, to stomp out nationalist uprisings and the French Revolution, and or at least Napoleon, uh, things like that. Um, so le- when the Tsar stepped down, Lenin thought, well, this is good. We can seize control of Russia and turn it into the vanguard for socialism. We're not ready for socialism, but we can the socialists can seize control of Russia and then sweep across Europe. And once we get to the developed countries like Germany and France, uh, they'll be able to, we'll be able to elevate the communism in those countries because it's supposed to be this multinational effort. It's not supposed to be divided by nation. Um, and so that was the gamble Lenin took, which did not work because he never, they, they never got all the way across Europe. They got a halted somewhere in Poland, basically, in their first expansion. And then over the years, they could never make it out of Eastern Europe. And those were all these undeveloped economies. The long and the short of it is, uh, Soviet Union had to put all this emphasis on developing their economy into essentially capitalism, except under the purview of communists. Um, and that was a, that led it to it being this very distorted, weird society in which a lot of the ideals of capitalism were elevated, but for the ideal of we're going to build it into communism eventually. So um, just passing it over to uh, uh, Douglas again. So yeah, like where would you say this book, this book does deviate from reality, right? In terms of portraying the, the Soviet attempts at building this economy. Yeah, it's alternate history of a very, very light stripe. It's alternate history with if you think of the timeline diverging, but then veering back and more or less joining the mainstream. Essentially, it deals with an alternate history of the years roughly from 1959 to 1964, where there is an abortive attempt to introduce a degree of computerised algorithmical rigour into Soviet centralised planning, so as to try to make this ideal of centralised planning actually work. Essentially, the postulate is, what if the Soviet Union had computer technology of the kind that you would need to actually run a centralised economy? But then after Khrushchev falls, the dream rapidly sputters in the face of political expediency and scepticism, and then by about 1968, we're back into a timeline that is identifiably and clearly our own. There's a degree of alternate history in the sense that some of the major characters are fictional, some are real people, and some are composites of real people under fictional names. But it's, as alternate histories go, it's certainly not one in which Red Plenty is actually achieved. At its highest, it is a vision of a world in which if everything had been different, that might have been possible. But it's certainly not a Harry Turtledove novel or anything of the kind. 
Yeah, like it's it's it, it was very hard for me to say, oh, this is different. And that you know, you base you look at the notes at the back, and it, it was very heavily based on reality. And in fact, it sounds like Spufford sat down to write a a nonfiction book initially um, about all this stuff. Um, if I've got that correct, is that right, uh, uh, I th- Douglas? I think I, in order to read this. As quickly as I did, I have not gone through the acknowledgements in enormous detail. Um, I, I think that I have heard that, and I don't remember where from. Um, well, he but, says that in the acknowledgements, I believe, is the thing. Well, in that um, case, it's definitely true. <laughs> yes, I, that that seems to be what he says. Yes, um, but yeah, it's just it, it is. It really does show because this this picks up after Stalin. Um, and it really does show sort of like, you can argue the Soviet Union was on the wrong track that whole time anyway, maybe even as far back as, as, as Lenin. Um, there's just a, you know, a, a, a mindset that's very heavily, um, it's, it's, they believed in historical materialism, which meant they thought that if they could just make the 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 nuts and bolts of reality work right of a society work right everything would follow and in fact it's the nature of uh, the reality of that world of, of the Soviet uh, you know the the very oppressive uh, very you know uh, just trust us we know what we're doing leadership which is almost the opposite of what communism was supposed to be because it was supposed to be a ground up movement um, that is is what uh, leads to it being very sort of uh like it going off the rails because it can never self-correct basically um like philip what's your take generally on like the whole soviet attitude as you read it in like the science fiction and stuff like that um yeah i I was um i mean you were talking about lenin and stuff there's actually a bit in red star that mentions lenin or or alludes to him anyway um there's a section where um the the narrator of the book the the soviet uh, or the the um, Russian communist thinker um, asks, you know, I'm just like a nobody. Why why couldn't you get like one of one of the um, uh, leaders in our, our movement to to be um, uh, the ambassador to Earth? And they said, um, and they went through a bunch of um, people. Uh, in all cases, um, not naming them directly, but um, sort of obviously alluding to to specific real people one of them was called the uh the man in the mountain um and uh they said he's you know he's he's a man with uh with iron and fire in his blood and he's he obviously has a lot of um uh um passion but uh like a lot of men like that they wouldn't actually adjust well to like a peaceful post you know, utopian uh, socialist society, and uh, also like a lot of men in uh, of that type, uh, they have a um, a real conservative streak, like a a, a reactionary sense to them, um, uh, underneath uh, a lot of their rhetoric. Uh, this section, uh, the um, translator said in notes, was often, I mean, always um, censored when in later uh, uh, Soviet Union reprints of this book. <laughs> Hmm. And sorry, that was written in 1908, you said? Yes. Huh. So that's pretty... And it was, like, 
so it was meant to be about Lenin when he said that. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, that, that's what the uh, the translator says in the notes. It doesn't mention him by name, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, so it's it's interesting that they sort of got his number like way yeah. before he even took power. <laughs> and I mean, that is well, I, I, yeah. I guess people just knew him because he was certainly a, a very brash figure. And it really and the thing about the conservatism is very interesting because like we always just say, oh, communism is like far far left. Uh, but like once you get the economic stuff out of control, and once you maybe get some of the ideas uh you know in place like yeah the soviet union was very very conservative and it was almost a case of like we have to be conservative because the people are conservative and those are the people we're ruling over and we're this backwards country so we have to you know uh we have to elevate the working man and the working man is sort of small-minded uh conservative mistrustful of new ideas mistrustful of big city elites even though big city elites are now running the country uh you know we have to prove that we're we're the working man it became a very a posture that they made to the point where like by most lights stalin was very socially conservative especially um you know and, and a lot of the social uh advances that they made actually got walked back up under stalin and some of them were in name only so i mean that that is actually very interesting in that regard and you know stalin was this provincial uh studied as a priest if i'm not mistaken yeah. um yeah he was literally like you know he was running it like a six uh, you know an 18th century ruler <laughs> except he'd been put in charge of the uh, of what was supposed to be this revolutionary uh radical political movement and that's what gave him his power so he had to say as, as this book actually says you know lenin was or stalin was a guy who took his you know duties as a communist seriously but he was you know having to bone up on it but really he just <laughs> because he was in power he had to he had to bone up on it as a communist but he ran it like a monarch in most other regards um um sorry you have anything to add uh, douglas to what i'm saying there <laughs> all i'd say one of my favorite quotes um from the novel when it's talking about the de- degeneration of the soviet regime and i think this might be what you're referring to is it, that stalin was a gangster who thought he was a social scientist, that Khrushchev was a gangster who wished he was a social scientist, but that eventually the Soviet Union would be taken over by gangsters who only pretended to be social scientists. And so that gap between high revolutionary ideals and the brutality and low ambitions of the men who ran the system. And that's just the, I think, that's the overarching story of the novel. And that's the as much as it's a series of vignettes, that really is the theme of each and of most of the vignettes. High-minded idealists who, in whose heads we are allowed to travel and with whom we identify, colliding with tremendous force and dashing themselves against entrenched social and political conservatism. That you have um, people navigating with and forced to fend for themselves in systems of intense anti-Semitism, of intense sexism, of intense opposition to change of any kind. And that for all its revolutionary ideals, this is a profoundly ossified and corrupt and absurd system. Yeah, and when you say, when he says uh, Stalin is a gangster, just to be clear, that's 
not in any way an exaggeration. Stalin's job was literally to like rob banks and do crimes for the so for to raise for the co- for the communists when 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 they were still uh, on the outs. Like uh, he was. Uh, my understanding is they actually at one point told him like, okay, don't rob any banks for a while. And he kept robbing banks and and doing crimes, uh, which people pointed to as like he you know he was a criminal at heart really he wasn't a he wasn't as much of a good party member you know lenin say what you will about lenin he he was a guy who really believed in what he was doing and and uh, again as this book says it's like it was a group of uh intellectuals who believed in this high-minded philosophy and believed that it they they might have to act like ruthless gangsters to to accomplish it because they were up against ruthless gangsters in capitalism um and that's kind of what led to their downfall in that sense it, it, it you know it, i i think communists would say i'm perhaps being too idealistic and not materialistic enough in believing this but it i, th- I really think it is true that you, you you know you have to set out as you as you intend to be as as you intend to continue uh and if your ideals are like well we'll do whatever nasty stuff we need to do to get to uh the good stuff and we'll we'll rule like iron-fisted tyrants for the sake of getting past that into an utopian world of liberty um the fact of the matter is that the iron-fisted dictatorship is going to it's going to be self-perpetuating <laughs> like it's too good a deal for the dictator for them to give it up for some high-minded plan again maybe maybe lenin could have done it because he really did believe in that uh but of course he was out of the picture fairly quickly and uh he left a legacy of uh tyrants and sheeple basically unfortunately um phil um when uh you so you also read uh just to change a little bit um you also read alita uh queen of mars right that's another book you've um, read <clears throat> yeah alita queen of mars is the name of the movie adaptation which is a very loose adaptation the, the book was uh alita or the decline of mars but yes it was by uh Alexei Tolstoy, the cousin of the more famous Tolstoy, um, and it was um, uh, unlike uh, uh, Red Star, which uh, depicts a, a Martian society that's been socialist for a long time, um, and um, even before that, never had many wars or, or nations forming because um, it says it didn't have like natural, like no uh, oceans. Uh, not a lot of tall mountains and so there weren't geographical barriers to separate nations so that didn't really form so even long before um, uh, socialism took place when they were still in a capitalist system there was still less wars and bloodshed than we have on earth Um, which uh, again I I thought was an interesting sort of acknowledgement that um, uh, utopias you know we, we on earth have various challenges to to get to that point anyway um alita takes place on a, a mars that's still a, a monarchist um system decaying and um um the uh russian uh, astronauts um in the story who come to mars actually uh start up a, a revolution on the planet um and it's a little ambiguous by the ending how that uh um, turns out for mm. uh, uh, for the world uh, in the uh, uh, film adaptation, uh, which um, a, a silent movie. Uh, 
Yeah, it's basically, uh, like I said, very loosely adapted. Uh, the Martian, Martian sections are actually a dream sequence, um, which right. is disappointing. Well, okay, um, so that's actually interesting because that was released in Soviet Russia, right, the, the, the yes. movie? Okay, so here's the thing. That was actually a big deal in Soviet ideology, uh, the idea that... Um, you know, uh, the fantastic was frowned upon. It was seen as a bourgeois notion. Um, and in fact, um, like, so there, that was probably necessary for censorship purposes uh, to portray this, you know, if it was if it was going to be this fantastical story, even if it's, quote, technically sci-fi, it was probably too far from the material reality that the, the Soviet uh, censors would have approved of. Uh, later on in, I think, the 50s, they made a movie that was attempting to be, I think, their answer to uh, the America's Destination Moon, uh, which was about a Soviet landing on the moon, again, years before it actually happened. And um, they... Um, they uh, it was very, you know, hard sci-fi. It was very, for the time, what they believed was very realistic. But uh, to portray weightlessness, the um, the uh, they used a bit of stop motion with astronaut little puppets bouncing around in, in <laughs> long shot. And that scene, I believe, was actually censored in a lot of, at one point, I think it was added back in eventually, but it was censored at the time because it was seen as too whimsical and too fantastical. Like that, that was the attitude towards... Uh, storytelling and especially science fiction in Soviet Union only only kids films could get away with um true fantasy or anything that fun, fanciful or whimsical uh, but otherwise you had to be very firmly realistic so they were the they were the original uh, hard sci-fi nerds who insisted everything be uh, be as purely realistic as possible um yeah so the the Alita movie is is actually mostly uh fairly boring uh, right. um dr- like re- realistic drama um and then there's there's dream sequence sections that are actually fun to watch um particularly because they they used uh, uh modernist uh like constructivist uh designs um in all the costumes and sets so it it really does look futuristic um yeah that's though, another that sorry go ahead sorry yeah the, the the martian sections do sort of roughly follow the the book uh except uh Alita um, becomes uh, sort of a villain in the movie version when she takes control over the communist revolution, but it, it goes badly because you can't let monarchs uh, be in charge. <laughs> Which is a funny ironic because, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, Lenin was from a noble family originally, and <laughs> a lot, and some of the leaders who did take charge of the, you know, had some some of that kind of thing in it. But the, it's funny that they do, um, yeah, like that again, that kind of sort of whimsical uh, artistic surrealism we're talking about the conservatism of the soviet union that that is exactly the thing like they wanted very purely realistic art soviet realism is literally a movement in art um you know you you weren't really supposed to be fantastical and whimsical in even in just in terms of art direction and things it was tended to be frowned upon actually uh, there's a bit in this book where and read plenty where they talk about uh, that after stalin died um or was it after Khrushchev died um, or was kicked out? That, that, w- Douglas, do you remember that the film suddenly got better because there was a bunch yeah. of stuff that had been held back? That's after Khrushchev loses power. There's a brief burst of interesting films under Brezhnev simply because the censorship machinery had been so clogged up by Khrushchev's mad flights of fancy that stuff actually gets to be able to be released again. But then very rapidly that stops. 
and I think it's it's interesting. This, this is a it's it's a really interesting point to make with regard to Khrushchev in particular, because part uh, the entire move towards computerizing socialism gets written off at the end of this novel as just one of Khrushchev's mad flights of fancy. It gets shut down by a new, more ruthless, more pragmatic leadership that wants to be. Um, more measured and conservative, and yet in doing so, they lay the seeds for the entire system to eventually fall apart by falling back into the same old habits. So this this novel, I think, directly links that that intense aesthetic conservatism with the ultimate downfall of the regime. That a regime that's incapable of dreaming or incapable of speculation or fantasy or science fiction, if you like, is ultimately a regime incapable, as you said, of self-correcting. Yeah, and and it, as you say, Khrushchev being elevated in this is kind of funny. Like mm. uh, they 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 show off right right early on, like that. For instance, he uh, he orders or he's uh, his his gov- under his government, a bunch of protesters at one point get gunned down um, over the you know they're protesting over food prices, and they've actually convinced themselves that you know things have changed because that was apparently the big thing with Khrushchev. I've seen it elsewhere. If you've seen the movie uh, The Death of Stalin. Um, which is a, a very fun movie. Well, Amazing fun might movie. not be the rest world, but <laughs> an entertaining satire anyway. Um, and it does very much portray Khrushchev, and this is you know more or less accurate as I understand it, as a reformer and a guy who basically began the process, that, which I believe was literally called the process of de-Stalinization, uh, of literally saying, yeah, well, we're not going to be a murderous, oppressive regime anymore, even though they kind of still were, but they, they, they stopped shooting people for, you know, coughing in the wrong direction basically um and and it was clearly a desire to get back on track to the you know utopian ideals that we were supposed to have seen in communism uh under khrushchev but but he i i mean he had he had his own issues and of course he wasn't um an absolute dictator sorry what you were going to say about khrushchev there uh, i was going to say he is one of my favorite characters in this novel so for phil's benefit khrushchev is the point of view character in the second chapter in the novel and in the last chapter in the novel and the novel has no illusions ultimately about on what side of the moral ledger he ends up um you know it describes him in the end as this retired monster But at the same time, in the second chapter, which depicts his visit to New York in 1959 and sort of his exposure to capitalist society, it's told from the perspective that he really believes this. He really believes that when he sits down with capitalists in New York, with some of the, you know, powerful, wealthy industrialists, that this is going to be an actual opportunity to explain the virtues of communism to them, an actual opportunity for the two ideologies to meet and to prove the superiority of it. And he's disappointed that they don't seem to be taking him seriously. He he is portrayed... I mean, the, the society over which he rules is consistently portrayed as an incredibly authoritarian, conservative, miserable, corrupt place. And the novel is under no illusions about his ultimate responsibility for that. But there's a naivety and an underlying idealism about him, even as he is portrayed as, you know, an unrealistic and boorish and ultimately also, and ultimately as, you know, monstrous, that makes it really compelling. It's an attempt to humanise someone who I think outside Death of Stalin is often understood as this sort of rough caricature. 
there's a there's a point uh, he makes uh, Spufford makes in the um sorry is it Spufford or Spoofford? I think Spufford. <laughs> Spufford. There's a point he makes in the acknowledgments that um the Soviets or not or the footnotes rather that the um the Soviets were probably less aware of their own history than like we are reading about it now <laughs> like cuz at the time so much had been censored and and plus I mean even at at the beginning of the Soviet Union, uh, the the Russians were like again. This was part of the problem. They were these provincial backwards people who spent their entire lives in a small town. Uh, and I mean, in some ways, Stalin was one of these people. Uh, he he went out into a larger world, but he like you know you're raised as a peasant in a village, uh, who were often seen as these sort of conniving little. Uh, cynical weirdos living off in their own little village and and being almost proud of their ignorance uh which is something else the book says might have been the fundamental uh down thing that led to the downfall of the soviet union was that it enshrined ignorance essentially which is of course what stalin like it's they should have been building a society of free thinking uh smart people who could solve all the problems and instead they enshrined people who were stupid and didn't ask questions and incurious because that's how stalin liked it right and that was that was one of the things that kind of uh led to led to the downfall of of the soviet union as it were um and because it wasn't built to last basically and the and that completely contradicts uh, the space race uh and like the thing the the sci that's actually an interesting thing about this novel that it doesn't mention the space race at all um that's that's a little strange don't you think douglas i think i think they mentioned at one point on the trip to New York that he's bringing along a replica of Sputnik and that's it. it there's even what seems like a deliberate omission that in the cast of characters it lists Khrushchev's son as the rocket scientist and then in the actual novel itself it describes him as an airplane designer like it's mm. a, it almost feels like a deliberate attempt to shy away from that and it's it is interesting especially since there seem to be so many points of parallel that this is a novel in which um, scientific progress is frustrated by the fundamental political inadequacy and flaws of the Communist Party, which is fundamentally the, also the sort of how the Russians lost the space race, that the pursuit of science being thoroughly compromised by a broken political system. I don't know if it's that Spufford thought that it would be a digression from what's already a really packed novel, or that if anything, it might be too obvious an illustration of his underlying points that what he's got here serves as an example of what was happening in every single segment, sector of the system, and this is just a really tragic example of it going wrong. But you're right, it's a really interesting omission. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Philip, what's, what's sort of your... We're talking about, about the, this book and, and everything, but also just the Soviet Union in general. Like, what's your take on the Soviet Union in this regard? Do you have anything <laughs> to add to what we're saying here um, in general? Um, well, uh, a few things. I, th- I think I mentioned this, uh, just a, an anecdote. I think I mentioned this in um, uh, our episode on uh, Moorcock's um, uh, Warlord of the Air uh, episode. But uh, apparently Stalin's hometown had baby fights. <laughs> right. What? Yeah. Like they, they had a uh, annual day where everybody just fought each other. And there was a time set aside in the, in the afternoon or something where the children would fight. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's an I think you should leave sketch. 
um, yeah, they, they went over this on Behind the Bastards, yeah. uh, the, uh, the podcast, and it's it's wild. Like that, this real, like this is a yeah savage town he came from. Yeah, it's yeah. This is this is what I'd read in a lot of places about like what the Soviet what Russia was like before the Soviet, you know, like it was, again, it was seen as very backward and it was almost like part, there were people in Russia who were like, we have to join Europe and join the night at the time, 19th century. And, uh, you know, become part of the modern world and everything like that and look to Europe. But there were people who were almost like, we're not Europeans, we're Asians, which for whatever reason was equated with being backwards and, uh, or at least, or provincial or having its own culture or having its, and that led to some of the, the weirder and more alien aspects. And also the sort of, you know, the, 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 the peasants live out again, live out in the wild and live their own lives in their, in their little, uh, their, their little villages. And it's not, you know, and they, they worship the czar as the unquestioned, uh, leader of all of this. And in fact, that's one of the things about Russia and China, both the two big, vectors for communism were they were both societies that right up until the revolution had a, a leader who was revered as basically a deity like no exaggeration uh, the czar was you know the embodiment of man uh, of of god's will on earth uh like the, the the churches would preach about how the czar was holy and he was the one to and i mean all monarchs have that to a certain extent but it was really heavily emphasized in in Soviet Russia. And then, of course, China is the same thing. The emperor was, you know, a, literally the ch- child of the gods, and it was it was tied up with their religion as well. Um, and that might have been another thing that kind of led... They hadn't liberalized into something uh, more democratic ideals and more of the idea of the common man. Anyway, sorry, Philip, I'm yeah, kind of interrupting you. From, from yeah. my understanding, um, uh, the way it worked, ba- like... Um, uh, locals uh, would would blame their their local um uh like government official rather and and they they assume that the czar just didn't know what was going on cuz the the czar you know mm-hmm. if the czar knew then he would have put a stop to all the the um oppression we're going through right exactly yeah there's and a- eventually that sort of falls apart and they they you know yeah. Well, that was the thing. They started that was that was very much something that led to the revolution was just people starting to realize just what an absolute piece of garbage and idiot that um uh, uh Nikolai Romanov was. Like he was just absolutely worthless. The point like when the revolution occurred, even there were people who were devout monarchists and didn't want to do away with the Tsar as a concept absolutely didn't want nicholas to be czar anymore he wanted him to step down and replace him and as it happened there wasn't really anyone viable to replace him but they but a lot of people didn't realize that for they didn't realize that his son for instance had severe hemophilia and and was probably not in any shape to take over the uh, the throne so it put them in a spot in that regard but like yeah like by the by the end of world war 1 just absolutely everyone except an abs a tiny clique of le- yes men just wanted him gone um and so like he he'd broken the illusion of oh wow this godly czar who rules us all is and who is all wise it's also interesting in this book that um uh they talk about how someone um uh I, i'm sorry about 
not naming characters here, but they're all these incomprehensible Russian names that kind of blur together. Uh, but one of the main characters who, like this idealist who wants to reform the system, uh, he ends up by writing a letter literally to Stalin in the 30s saying, hey, here's what we need to do to, to build towards this uh, utopian society. And they actually have, of course, Stalin doesn't get the letter, but the, sent, the, the people around him do, and they read it and they say, hey, this guy's got interesting ideas and, and the the person the, that he project, presents it to goes, yes, well, it's it's far too damaging politically. It, it would radicalize the system far too much, you know, and then the person thinks about it and says, oh, okay, well, should we arrest this guy then? <laughs> and the guy and the guy says, ah, he means, well, let's let him go. And that's sort of this, possibly this uh, fracture point where, like, he could have been arrested and that's, maybe that's actually meant to be the the thing that get, makes it an alternate reality because this guy was allowed to live and then put his ideas into practice in the 50s. Is that, do you think, Douglas, do you think that's what was intended there? I think that's a really good point. And it's, they make a sufficient point about how unlikely it is that uh, Leonid Vitalovich Kantarovich survived. That I can yeah. believe that that is the intended hinge. Um, it's... I, I don't... I'm... I'm, I'm so I cut my teeth as a nerd on the alter- on the alternatehistory.com bulletin board um, where we spent a lot of time talking about points of departure and identifying what can be butterflied in and out from particular points. I get the feeling that Spufford did not grow up on the alternatehistory.com bulletin boards and was not that concerned about identifying the precise point of departure. Um, <laughs> it's The whole thing is ever so slightly subtly different. I don't think he tried to chart out how things diverged from this specific point, but I think that's as good a candidate as any. Sorry, Phil, you were saying some points of emerging. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I wanted to, to clarify. Uh, a, a lot of peasants uh, uh, thought thought the Tsar was a good guy. I, I'm sure uh, say Jewish people in, in oh, Ukraine God. didn't yeah. think that. Um, <laughs> j- yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I, I was too general. I, I'm a Oh, um, oh, absolutely. Should have said Gentiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's it's like any other... I mean, literally in the Middle Ages, uh, where we had the European kings, like the Western European kings, like, even then, people have said, like, the, the peasants often hated the king. So I'm sure that was the true in Tsarist Russia. But it wasn't even so much the, of, like the king is all infallible and can never do wrong so much as it was the king is too powerful and it's what god wants and you know we just have to suck it up and take it right <laughs> like the, it, yeah. it, you know what are we going to do about the the, the czar on the other side uh, there was the the guy called uh lysenko who was the um in charge of a big part of the science specifically the biology sectors of soviet science even into apparently the khrushchev era i didn't know that but that's what this book says um and again maybe that's an alternate aspect but he had all these crackpot ideas which included doing away with uh, genetic heredity and believing that environment was the only shaper of uh a bio- an organism's biology um, which Stalin loved. He loved this guy. And he came up with all these crazy ideas like we could grow lemons in the Arctic and things like that that were going to, uh, that of course the, these crackpot ideas that they pursued and didn't uh, pay off, obviously. And li- anyway, Lysenko gets mentioned a lot in this uh, book as someone that <laughs> that's sort of standing in the way of progress and that they had to, to shut down. Um, oh yeah, I actually know a bit about uh, Lysenko. Um mm-hmm. Uh, he believed in a uh, a form of Lamarckian evolution, right. which is actually a pre-Darwin form of evolution. So, mm-hmm. uh, to simplify, like uh, 
giraffes had long necks because their um their ancestors like stretched their necks so that like passed down to generations so if you if you work out a lot your your children will be stronger right um yeah and there there there's some like um you know people who who grow up in famines apparently their their children are more likely to I can't remember what you, the, you, the details was. Like, there's some... There's some basis for it. Yeah, it's not completely... Yeah, but it's not... Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and... Um, uh, basically, the official word in the Soviet Union was that Darwinism was... Um, like, Darwin's uh, uh, theories of how evolution works, which is... Um, um, natural selection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, d- uh, yeah. That it was reac- inherently reactionary. Mm-hmm. That it was... Uh, basically a fascist ideology right um which is interesting you know the anti-evolution people who say you know the the um soviet union was all into into darwinism they actually um banned darwinism yeah <laughs> in favor of a different right. kind of evolution which was more um right Be- like presented a more communal idea of of how things would work rather than a competitive one so I, again, that that's sort of simplifying Darwin, but yeah. But well, it was the understanding of Darwin as this yeah. as social, uh, like uh, as as oh, the, the only the fittest survive, and and like the of course the, the Nazis loved this kind of uh, cod Darwinism of like extreme. Oh, you're stronger, so you do better, and your your blood is better than other people's blood, and like that. You can see how like you know they were sort of reacting to that by running way too far in the other direction basically um sorry Douglas oh and, and Lushenko's ideas caused the holodomor basically yeah like, in some uh, ways yeah yeah exactly. a lot of people died because of this uh yeah these stupid ideas and there's of course debate over whether stalin did it intentionally or whether it was through yeah um um because he, he did I- ignorance Ukraine. yeah he didn't yeah uh either way it's bad but like one's worse than the other uh douglas yeah did you have anything to say about lysenko and the science uh, aspect of that there or uh well um one of my favorite characters in the novel is zoya who is a fruit fly biologist who is treading the path of studying what are clearly darwinian concepts within a political orthodoxy of lysenkoism and that's like I said, one of my favourite parts of the, of the novel where you have these characters who are carefully trying to work within completely unworkable systems, trying to advance real science when there are these rigid hard lines that you can't go against. How far can you make these things work within the boundaries of the system? And by the end of the novel, when Zoya is ultimately forced to resign in disgrace once into this brief bubble of intellectual freedom is being shut down. One of the reasons why she's ultimately running into trouble is because using Darwinian... studying um, mutations from generation to generation, she's identified that there must have been a very large number of people who died in the 1930s in order to produce the kinds of results that she's looking at, contrary to Soviet orthodoxy. And so it's just... As much as it's fascinating and to see these characters try to thrive within this environment, and as much as it's really, really interesting and inspiring and likeable and you're rooting for them, the idea that fundamentally you can't quarantine one part of intellectual inquiry from another, that, for example, quarantining 
um, Soviet atrocities beyond debate means that biology is in turn infected. That means in turn that uh, your ability to advance economic ideas is infected. That shutting off that the authoritarianism of the political system can't just be quarantined to that, but it just corrupts the entire habit of thought across society, and that Lysenkoism is both a manifestation of that, but also becomes unchallengeable because it is so tied up with the political order. It's I, I The whole reason why I kept bringing it up on the podcast with Adam is because... I can't help but think of it in Star Trek terms. Star Trek's idea is the uh, one of Star Trek's ideas is that political progress and technological progress go hand in hand. The end of scarcity brought about by the replicator is closely linked to the fact that they live in this fully automated luxury communism in the Federation. And this novel, as much as it, this novel keeps coming up in that context because it. What, what it sort of demonstrates is the antithesis of that, a world in which technology, technological progress is frustrated by that complete political authoritarianism, that you can't ultimately proceed at different speeds in different domains. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just watched uh, um, uh, an episode of uh, Some More News, the, the YouTube show, um, and they pointed out um, it used like uh, on on technology uh, leading to uh, social progress. Say on the on the Jetsons in the '60s, it was thought uh, we would eventually reach uh, two-hour workdays because automation would make it so people didn't need to work that much. But we see uh, with the way that our system works, um, they just want us to work more. <laughs> yeah. It- um, um, and automation just means people lose jobs, and mm-hmm. then, yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's kind of what the the you know what what we get into with like the so so you know it was also the sort of elevation of workers, which meant like well you must love to work and work is great in and of itself rather than you know trying to take back workage like it was it's funny when people talk about like oh socialists are just lazy they want everything for free whereas every regime that's called itself socialist whatever else you want to say about it it made the people there worked pretty hard (laughs) generally speaking that was not usually an issue and it was often this sort of idea of like yes we're a nation of workers that means we work and we work hard all the time you know so that gets enshrined as it were yeah in uh in red star uh as i mentioned people can work as for as long hours as they want, um, uh, which uh, for some people means not very much, and other people means a lot, um, even to the point of possibly overworking themselves. That that does come up as as a possible issue, um, but it's not actually needed in order to to get goods or anything. Like you you don't have to. It's just people have a natural. Most people have a natural desire to to accomplish something. Yeah. Um well as always the the Soviet Union never uh w- would never let something happen if they could force it to happen by putting a gun to people's heads so you know that was the way it worked out Um anything you want to add at the end there uh Douglas or uh I'd just like to thank you and Phil for having me on the podcast and for giving me an opportunity to once again read an excellent book that's Red Plenty by Francis Spufford, available in all good bookstores near you. 
<laughs> but possibly not in the science fiction section, as we've determined. Possibly. It's available in the bookstore, but it's going to be a fascinating journey of discovery as to where. Is it history? Yeah. Is it economics? Is it science fiction? Only you can find out and discover something about yourself along the way. <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of our latest five-year plan. Uh, once, a lot, once again, an unalloyed triumph with no hitches whatsoever. Uh, we have been Commissars Adam Prosser and Philip Rice, and we were happy to host visiting capitalist lackey Douglas McDonald Norman for a look That's at the me. unbridled <laughs> for a look at the unbridled bounty of our glorious podcast. Uh, we thank uh, genius cyberneticist Alex Ross for hosting our podcast, uh, national composer Jack Furick, who composed our theme song for the greater glory of the revolution. All true comrades contribute to our Patreons, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. So subscribe to either of us and you can be part of the inner party that gets to enjoy this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok A for Philip. Anyone who fails to do so will be branded counter-revolutionary. So until next time, glory to the people and the future of untrammeled plenty.